Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we are live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we're bringing you another climate special. We'll talk about California's role in this year's United Nations Climate Conference that just wrapped up in Dubai, and we'll look at how the agreement reached at that conference to begin reducing global consumption of fossil fuels could play out here in the Bay Area, including what it might mean for local refineries. Plus, we'll learn about the very special Coit Tower murals. But first, this news. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. This is our third State of the Bay climate special, and regular listeners might know that I'm a climate guy with a day job as director of the climate program at UC Berkeley Law's Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. And in that capacity, I attended this year's UN Climate Conference in Dubai, better known as COP28. So later on in the hour, we'll discuss how the agreement reached at that conference to reduce Global consumption of fossil fuels could play out here in the Bay Area, and in particular, what it might mean for local communities currently home to oil refineries. And we'll take a tour through the WPA murals at San Francisco's Coit Tower. But first, from November 30th to December 12th, about 70,000 world leaders, business executives, scientists, climate activists, and others gathered in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates for this year's United Nations Climate Summit, known as COP28. So along with me, there were a number of California politicians, business people, and climate activists, including our first guest, Assembly Member Rebecca Bauer-Cahan. She represents California's 16th Assembly District here in the East Bay. And she's here with us tonight to talk about why she went, what was accomplished, and what it might mean for us here in the Bay Area. So welcome to State of the Bay, Assembly Member Bauer-Cahan. Thanks so much, Ethan. Happy to be here. So I can say from experience that it's a big commitment to travel across the world (laughs) for a conference like what we just attended out in Dubai. So talk to us about why you decided to make the trip and how it's connected with the work that you're doing in the California Assembly. Yeah, I have three kids, too, that I manage in addition to my job as an assembly member. So it was absolutely a big decision to go. But I think it was critically important that we as California both went and learned from our colleagues around the world who are... Um, in some ways, leading in areas that California needs to learn from and also help the world understand that California is the fourth largest economy will continue to lead in ensuring that we do everything we can to combat the climate crisis. And when you made the decision to go to, to Dubai for COP28, what were you hoping to accomplish specifically for your district here in the Bay Area or for California at large? Did you have any specific issues that you were targeting, either hoping to communicate on or learn about? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm hugely focused on is our energy transition. It's affecting Californians in numerous ways right now, and we need to make sure that we accelerate and get to 100% renewable energy on our grid as quickly as we can, while I hopefully driving down the cost of energy, because that is a critical issue for Californians right now. And we know that there's places around the world that are leading in certain ways that we can learn. And so that was something I was focused on. And any uh, takeaways in particular on that subject? We had an incredible meeting with uh, actually an Israeli delegation that is doing a pilot project on solar Uh, solar on top of active working farms. And that is actually not something California has done to date. We've been choosing between our agricultural economy and 
solar energy, and they are figuring out a way to do both at once. And I think it's an incredible opportunity that um, we're going to continue to learn from them on and I think could lead to significantly more energy on our grid. So that was a fun piece of knowledge we took away. Oh, that's good. Yeah, the so-called agrovoltaics. We've done a bit of research on that. And absolutely, it's a potential win-win. It can boost productivity on agricultural land, but also, of course, generate uh, clean energy. I'm curious beyond the renewable energy piece of it. Did you have other big takeaways from being out there in Dubai at the COP? One of the best sessions I went to was actually Al Gore's session on his new uh, climate tool, his artificial intelligence tool, that um, is an incredible, incredible piece of information for anybody who's trying to do climate policy, because what it does is it gives us accurate real-time information on the emissions in our state and anywhere in the world, to be frank. But one of the things that he was able to show was that the voluntary emissions uh, reporting that we're getting from the folks who are telling us what the emissions look like are a fraction of what is actually coming being emitted. And as we look at how we refine cap and trade here in California and drive down emissions, that real accurate information is going to be critical to making good policy. So I thought that was really exciting. Well, absolutely. It's impossible to regulate something if you can't measure it and don't have an accurate uh, data on how uh, uh, different industrial facilities, other emitters around the state are actually polluting when it comes Mm -hmm. to greenhouse gases. I'm wondering if anything, including maybe the emissions data that you got a glimpse at through AI, anything that you heard or, or saw or learned there, conversations you had might be a basis for some future legislation or initiatives that you might want to take the lead on in the assembly. Yeah. I mean, I think that we'll see a lot of what we learned. We did a lot of studying on hydrogen while we were there. It's something California is working to try to figure out. Um, but we are in process, if you will. So I think that that'll be, you know, how do we define green hydrogen? How do we figure out a way to put it on a grid in a clean way? And that's really critical to what California wants to do as it relates to hydrogen. So that was helpful. I think we'll see some of that learning come out. Um, I think that information I mentioned will be critical to the work we do in the future. I happened to leave that session um, with former Vice President Gore and run into the head of our air board. And I, I shared the information with her and she was equally as excited about it. So I think, you know, it's great opportunity for us to take information back and put it to use. And in terms of hydrogen, do you see any particular role for the Bay Area when it comes to the hydrogen economy? Yes. I mean, one of the largest projects that we are seeking to get funding through Arches, which is the federal dollars that are going to come down on hydrogen, is a facility right across the hill from my district in Stockton um, that will be a green hydrogen fueling facility for buses and the train we're hoping to build to connect BART into the uh, Central Valley. And so, you know, as we look to do these green hydrogen products, projects, many of them are here. We know that some of the refineries that you're going to talk about later are working to bring hydrogen onto the grid. Some of those, perhaps, um, we need to figure out how to get in a greener fashion, but uh, we're going to see it right here in our backyard for sure. Well, taking a step back and just looking at the larger agreement that was eventually struck in Dubai, I'm curious to hear your take on what was accomplished at this year's conference and maybe in particular the language and the agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Of course, that was controversial. Some people wanted the agreement to call for a complete phase out or phase down of fossil fuels, but the agreement did for the first time talk about transitioning away from fossil fuels. What was your take on that provision and the overall agreement that was struck in Dubai? Well, I'll say, and I don't know what your experience at COP was, Ethan, but I 
Definitely. It was my first time going to the climate conference. And one of my takeaways was we have a ways to go to get on the same page around the world about the urgency of the climate crisis. And so I have to say, I was happy to see that come out. I didn't, when I left COP, which was at the end of the first week, expect it to go as far as it did. So I was happy that we're talking about phasing out fossil fuels. But, you know, one of the critiques, which I think is 100% accurate, is that it doesn't have a timeline. It doesn't have real metrics. And we are in a moment in time where we need to be moving with such urgency that we can't just be talking in vague terms about the shifts that need to happen. We need to have a plan to achieve them. Well, it's certainly tough when you have these international conferences. You get the sort of lowest common denominator <clears throat> factor because we've got countries that obviously are major oil and gas producers like Saudi Arabia, Russia. You know, Obviously, in the United States, we have our own internal divisions. So it could be tough to have an agreement that truly is as ambitious and as urgent as the science tells us it is. But even within California, we have you know, major oil and gas uh, producing facilities, counties that are heavily dependent on it. Here in the Bay Area, we have refineries, as we're going to talk about. And, and even in California, we don't have a plan to phase out fossil fuel production. So do you think this international agreement could translate even just down to California level in terms of the ambition that we need to be taking to address this problem? Yes. I mean, I think it is the role of California and leaders like us to set the stage for what should be agreed upon at places like COP. And so I do hope that we will figure out our own path and our own timelines. And we've done that in other ways, right? We are phasing out the sale of um, traditional gas vehicles, right? And that's happening in California. We now see over a quarter of cars sold in California are now zero emission vehicles. So we're moving in the right direction in some ways. But to your point, this move away from fossil fuels writ large is something we need to focus on. And one of the takeaways that I did have at COP that we also need to be looking at is plastics. You know, it is one of the ways we've shifted fossil fuels. As they shift away from vehicles, we're shifting it into making plastic. And so we need to just decrease dependence overall and not be shifting our dependence in other ways. Well, that's an important point about plastics. And I'm just wondering if there are other decisions made at COP28, anything else coming out of that conference that you think Bay Area residents in particular should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and, um, you know, we were talking about deforestation in the Amazon even then. <laughs> and so, you know, I do think that the conversation about deforestation was an important one. I think we need to ensure that it's not a way to continue to emit, right, is protecting against deforestation, but using that as a way to emit, but instead really focusing on the harm that is doing to our climate. So I thought that was an important point that was brought up as well. We've been talking about it for far too long. We need to actually uh, make sure we're doing the right thing on it. And something you just alluded to, which is that it's really hard to get an ambitious agreement at these UN climate conferences. And I think a lot of people are a bit cynical about the process. And of course, the UN doesn't really have decision-making authority over a lot of these issues. That's up to states like California and countries like the United States and, and others around the world. But I'm wondering kind of beyond the agreement itself, and you've referenced some of the side events and conversations you've had, I wonder if you can just kind of describe a bit about how the conference works and, and the value that someone like you can get out of the conference, even beyond the ultimate agreement that comes together that the nations agree to. Yeah. So we've talked about the agreement came out, that came out. So there's negotiations happening with the UN nations to come to a climate agreement. Um, and that is happening at one part of the conference. In addition, there are main stages and large stages where, like I talked about with Vice President Gore, former Vice President Gore is speaking and 
they're unveiling and announcing and um, teaching all of us things. And there's very small talks. I went to talks on hydrogen that had 20 people at them where you're learning from other folks. Um, and But I, one of the most valuable things we did was we did have intergovernmental meetings. We met with Japan. We met with Germany. We met with, as I mentioned, the learning we did with Israel. Um, and we shared with them things we're working on and we learned from them. And I think that discussion was really important. It was also really important for people to know that no matter what happens in the United States, because, you know, under our former president, we stepped out of these negotiations. And so people need to know that California is the fourth largest economy in the world will continue to be committed to solving the climate crisis, no matter what happens in the U S because that fickle nature, what happened under the former president, I think we heard made people feel a little bit, questioning where we are. And so we were able as California to show our ongoing commitment, which was really important. Well, California, California officials usually are treated like rock stars at these international conferences, just <laughs> given our track record. I'm not sure if I'm going to the next COP. It's scheduled to be in Azerbaijan, another oil producing uh, country. But I'm just curious if you have any plans to go back to COP, either COP 29 next year or beyond. You know, I ran for office to help my children inherit a planet that was better off. So the climate remains one of my top priorities. And to the extent that it's helpful to be at these conferences, I will be there. All right. Well, Assemblymember Rebecca Bauer-Cahan from California's 16th Assembly District here in the East Bay. Thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Thanks for having me. And coming up next, we're going to dig into what the agreement reached at COP28 to begin reducing global consumption of fossil fuels might mean for the Bay Area and its refineries. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. A museum exhibit puts the spotlight on artists with developmental disabilities. I think the show does a good job of showing not just the incredible accomplishments of the individual artists at all of these three studios, but the sense of togetherness. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Hey, this is One Way Possible, your fellow music traveler. Join me weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. as we cross genres, generations, and go all across the musical map discovering forgotten favorites, future favorites, and all the journeys in between. That's Monday through Friday nights, 8 to 10 p.m., right here on 91.7 KALW and KALW.org. Join us for the ride. Welcome back to State of the Bay and our third climate special. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about what lies ahead for Bay Area communities with oil refineries following the agreement at COP28 to begin reducing global consumption of fossil fuels. So we'd love to hear from you. Do you live in a community with a refinery? We want to hear about your experience. Has it impacted your health? Are you concerned about the economic impacts of shutting down refineries. How do you feel about refineries that are transitioning to biofuels off of fossil fuels? You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-TALK. Or you can also email us at stateofthebay at org. So despite some skepticism going into COP28, the conference concluded with a major milestone, as we've been discussing. Government ministers from nearly 200 countries reached a global agreement that does call for a transition away from fossil fuels. 
This agreement could increase pressure for California to follow through on its own commitment to address climate change, including a goal to achieve carbon neutrality in the state by 2045 or earlier. And this requires action on many fronts. And today we're going to focus on what it will mean for our state's oil refineries. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, as of January of last year, California ranked third in crude oil refining refining capacity. And here in the Bay Area, we have five refineries. And as a local show, State of the Bay, we're going to focus on those. If California transitions away from fossil fuels, as this climate agreement from Dubai signals, what will it mean for the oil refineries currently operating here and for the communities where they're located? So here to help us unpack these questions and understand what's at stake, I'm happy to be joined by Ann Alexander, Senior Attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ann. Thank you, Ethan. Happy to be here. And we're also joined by Greg Karras. Greg is an independent consultant with over 35 years of experience as a senior scientist for Communities for a Better Environment. He is the author of Decommissioning California Refineries, Climate and Health Paths in an Oil State. Thanks for joining us, Greg. I'm very happy to be here, Ethan. Thank you. So, Greg, California is widely viewed as a leader in addressing climate change, but in the title of your book, you do call California an oil state. Can you tell us why that is? Well, it's a particular kind of petrostate. It's uh, it's refining uh, oil, um, refining imported oil, imported from all over the world, as well as oil that's produced here. And it's refining about a third of that uh, total uh, oil input for export to other states and other nations. So not not an oil, not a crude oil exporter like Saudi Arabia, but um, the biggest refined products exporter on the West Coast of North America. And, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned and, refineries. And, Can you talk about the refineries specifically here in the Bay Area? We, you know, we've referenced that there are five of them. Can, can you talk about yeah. where they're located and how they play into this oil state that you're describing? Yeah, so the, um, the Chevron refinery is the largest of the five in Richmond, California. It's refining crude oil and imported um, uh, partially refined gas oil. And then uh, uh, the other big petroleum refinery in Contra Costa County was uh, built by Shell and sold by Shell to a company called PBF Energy, uh, Martinez Refining Company. Um, uh, that refinery had major flaring on, on Friday. People might have noticed some news on that. A week ago today, the Chevron refinery had even larger flaring event. And uh, the, the other petroleum refineries in Benicia, it's, it uh, was built by ExxonMobil. It's now owned by Valero. And then there are two oil refineries that are refining uh, vegetable oil and animal fats. Uh, they were they were petroleum refineries. They've just switched over whole hog using the same equipment, partially upgraded, uh, to refine this different kind of oil in Rodeo. Uh, which uh, the Philip 66 project that's not yet online, it's uh, slated to be the biggest in the world of its kind. And the one in the other Martinez refinery now owned by Marathon is the, is the last of the five. And uh, it has proved that the new type of oil is not necessarily totally benign. There's a worker struggling for his life with 80, de- 
uh, 80% of his body had first-degree burns in the hospital right now because of the latest of, I think, more than 18 uh, flare or fire incidents at that refinery since they started refining biofuel in January. Hmm. Oh, it's tragic to hear. And Greg, you described the location of some of these refineries. I think it's fair to say they're all essentially located in lower-income communities and communities that are you know, disproportionately populated by people of color compared to the Bay Area as a whole. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. So I think we could kind of put two and two together here about uh, political power and the uh, social and racial dynamics here in the Bay Area when it comes to refinery refinery siting and operation. And Alexander from NRDC, I want to turn to you. We talked about a potential for a fossil fuel phase down in the state following this COP28 agreement. What would that mean for these refineries specifically and for the communities in where these refineries are located, if we actually carried through on a fossil fuel phase out? Well, Ethan, it would be nice if it were as simple as let's just burn less gasoline in accordance with the commitments at COP. And when we do that, the refineries are going to quietly fade off into the sunset. Um, unfortunately, that isn't likely how it is going to work. Uh, There's starting to be a recognition, including on the part of some of our state regulators lately, that declining demand for petroleum products in California does not automatically translate into a decline in refining. Um, Clearly, the declining demand in the state is changing the economics for refineries. It's making things harder for them. But that said, there are still a number of paths that they can and will try to follow in order to keep themselves in in business. Um, Greg has mentioned a couple of them. One would be to increase their exports outside of California. Let's just send our carbon footprint out of the state. Um, another, as he also mentioned, is to pivot to bioenergy production, which a couple of our Bay Area refineries, the one in Phillip 66 and Rodeo and Marathon and Martinez are already doing. That unfortunately raises a host of problems that, that we can talk about. Um, they can also ratchet up their hydrogen production, uh, kind of as a, a side hustle. They already use hydrogen as part of the refining process, so it's really relatively easy for them to produce more of it um, for the transportation market. And of course, they love to talk about hydrogen being a clean fuel, but it's really nothing of the kind if you make it from fracked gas, which is exactly what they're doing now. So, The communities who are living with these refineries um, entirely understandably tend to view these possibilities uh, for the refineries as the worst case scenario. They've been living with refinery pollution for decades upon decades, and they just pretty much want to see the refineries gone so that they can have an economy in their community that's based on something that doesn't devastate their health. I mean, there's a literal death toll associated with these refineries. They emit types of pollution such as fine particulate matter that are clearly scientifically correlated with serious and sometimes lethal health impacts. So they want the refineries gone, but the refineries, uh, not at all surprisingly, since as a business matter, they're trying to lock themselves in to continued production of some sort uh, for for decades if they can. Uh, just another couple of quick things to mention. 
Um, it's important to bear in mind that as refinery economics go south, which is what's happening, the refineries will tend to increasingly fight any pollution control obligations that will increase their costs. Um, and that actually is happening right now in, in the Bay Area. Um, and of course, they may try to price gouge, which, as we know, is a problem the governor and the legislator tried to tackle this year. Mm-hmm. Well, Anne, you uh, mentioned some of the health impacts. I do want to get into those. But there's also significant economic impacts as well. I mean, in, in many of these communities, these refineries are a major source of jobs, uh, economic activity, revenue for local governments. So what happens if we were actually able to decommission some of these refineries? And you just talked about a lot of ways that they're avoiding decommissioning. What are ways that we could address some of the economic impacts? Yeah, it's a great point about the economic impacts because they are huge and we can't um, underestimate those as we talk about the transition. Refinery jobs are, in many cases, very highly paying jobs that you don't need a college degree for. And you have to consider what is going to happen uh, with workers who may lose those jobs. And then the communities themselves tend to be very heavily economically dependent on the refineries. Uh, it could be some very large part of their tax base. We could be talking 25, 30% or more of a community's tax base, which they stand to lose, creating a, a big hole in their budget. And then not to mention the fact that just in terms of real estate, these refineries tend to be a huge part of the community's landmass. I mean, for instance, the Chevron refinery in Richmond is close to 10% of the land in the city of Richmond. So these are potentially huge impacts. We're not talking just about a little blip. Um, and then to make matters even worse, these sites are likely to be very heavily contaminated. Um, in many cases, the refinery has been operating on the site for over a hundred, hundred years or so. Um, which is, you know, most of that taking place before anyone was worried about niceties like avoiding soil and groundwater contamination. Um, and then to make matters even worse before I get to the more optimistic part, um, there, there needs to be a recognition around these refinery closures that they are not heavily regulated. It's, it's kind of the wild west, um, as, as kind of a counterpoint. Some people may be familiar with what happened when they tried to close the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor a few years ago. Uh, there's, there's been development since then, but the point being it was all done under the auspices of the public utilities commission and there were ratepayer funds and, and there was essentially a referee there to make sure it happened smoothly. There is no such thing in the refineries. They can shut down when they want to um, and they can walk away. There are just few regulations about what they have to do. So that's the messy part. Um, but given all that, there is a right way and a wrong way to do this. And the wrong way is to not think about it right now and to let this happen. Um, there's a kind of a horror story that went on with a huge refinery in Philadelphia that essentially turned out that way with the community saddled with costs. But the right way to do it is to think now about where we're going to get the funding for the transition. 
Um, the oil companies have been making record profits. Um, and what makes sense is for us to collectively think about how we can get them to start sinking money into a rainy day fund that is going to fund the transition, support for the workers, support for the communities, cleanup of the site. We need to be thinking about that now um, and not when the refineries have already gone belly up. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot we need to talk about and a lot that the state clearly needs to plan for. I want to let listeners first know that this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area. This is our third climate special, and I'm Ethan Elkind hosting this discussion. We're talking about what a transition away from fossil fuels will mean for the Bay Area communities that are home to refineries with these important economic and public health impacts. And we're pleased to be joined by Greg Karras, an independent scientist with uh, Communities for a Better Environment and NRDC attorney Ann Alexander. We do want to hear from you. How do you feel about having refineries here in the Bay Area? Do you have thoughts on ways that our cities, counties, and our state can best address the possible decommissioning or conversion of these refineries? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. Well, Greg Karras, picking up where we just left off with Anne, this idea of a just transition, of figuring out how we can plan for an orderly transition, particularly for these workers, is something that has gotten a lot of attention. I know you've done uh, a lot of thinking and writing on this. Can you talk about what you think is needed to make this truly a just transition away from fossil fuels? Yeah, thanks. I, so so there's no question that we have to do it, that it, it is happening. Uh, whether there's policy driving it or not, refineries are shutting down. The bigger refineries are starting to shut down. Um, there aren't as many jobs in the, the new things they try to do. Um, even though the biofuel project, the type of biofuel that the refineries chose to retool for isn't working for the climate. Um, the, it's also providing less jobs and, and it's only going to get worse because the pressures are increasing so quickly. And, and, and also because the electric vehicles really are more efficient as they get cheaper. Um, they're going to knock another couple million barrels a day off, off of the world oil total. And that's happening more here and faster here. So it's happening. Question is whether, uh, whether it's going to be, uh, um, still refining oil and exporting it and being the gas station of the Pacific Rim uh, or not. And actually that fight is right now in Sacramento and in the way we talk about this. When people talk about green hydrogen and say they haven't defined it yet, when people talk about biofuels and, and don't get serious about how they're actually blowing up in refineries and causing fires and flaring and the the diesel is just it just boosts the petroleum diesel exports because we aren't control. We aren't actually ramping down refineries. Um, they're, they're buying into the oil industry's latest stall tactic. These are, these are unproven solutions. We have proven solutions to electrify transportation. And the sooner we start ramping down refineries, the more, the more likely it's going to be that we can be gradual about it. We have the technology Putting it in place has proved to be the challenge. That's going to take time to do it in a way that everybody comes along, that we have jobs for all the workers, 
and better jobs for all the workers and that we have um, the tax base for our local communities. Richmond, Benicia, maybe 20% of the local tax base is, is connected to the refineries there. This is So at the local level, uh, the environmental injustice is not just the poison uh, from the toxics, it's the poison of the, in the economy. And we need to get turn all of that around. And Greg, to, do it, to, do it, to do it gradually, we have to start right now which means that every time you hear somebody say, well, the oil industry is promising that if we help subsidize it, they've got this new solution that they don't have to phase down. Um, that's stealing our future. That's, that's actually making it certain that our, just, that our transition will be less just. And people need to be talking about it that way. Otherwise, um, we're kind of doing the same thing that the Arab states were doing, claiming that somehow... Uh, oil can still be part of the the solution in 2050. And there's such a thing as clean coal, too, by the way. Well, Greg, let's uh, go to the phone lines as we have a caller, Carrie from Benicia, dialing in. So, Carrie, welcome to State of the Bay. We'd love to hear your take on this issue here. Let's see, do we have Carrie? Oh, hi. Yeah, my name's Carrie Birdseye. I'm a city council member in the Valero town of Benicia. Uh, I ran to ensure that our um, community can be better protected from refinery pollution. Tomorrow night at our city council meeting, we will be discussing a local oversight mechanism, an industrial safety ordinance, one that the other four refineries in the Bay Area already has, because they're covered by Contra Costa's industrial safety ordinance. So we feel that this is important because... Okay, we just uh, lost you there. You just dropped out. Can you still hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you okay, hear you me? Said, you said it, uh, you feel it's important because, and then we dropped, then we lost you. So please continue from that. Yeah. Point. Okay. It's because uh, our has a little choppy we lost you again uh i'm not sure if we still have you but uh i i think it's great that you called in and i appreciate you uh, following this conversation and also alerting people about the oversight you're planning at the local level and alexander from nrdc i want to turn to you on this what kind of role can local governments play do they have authority over these refineries if so to what extent or how much of this ultimately is going to rely on the state government stepping in yeah, it's a great question, and I am pleased to hear um, that Benicia is taking the step because in many ways, local governments can and should lead the way. Uh, they know their local needs, um, and of course, they, ha- they have the biggest stake. They're right there. Um, I, as I'm sure uh, Benicia and every other local community is acutely aware, there are limits to what local governments can do. They can, the, the, the order of, of uh, state law versus local laws that sometimes state law will pre- preempt what local governments can do, but that doesn't mean that they're without tools. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that as more and more local communities act, um, they will raise the profile of this issue, which ultimately I think does need to be tackled on a statewide level, but really pleased to hear about what's happening in Benicia. And Greg, we've talked a bit about the public health impacts 
as well. And I'd like to delve into that a little more. We have a listener from Marin County, Jennifer, who emailed in saying the smoke from the recent fires at the Martinez refinery traveled all the way to Marin. I could see it and smell it here in my home. Are there resources to know when these facilities have accidents and what the public health impacts might be? So, Greg, I'm wondering if you could address Jennifer's question, but also to speak to the broader public health impacts from these refineries. Yeah, so the the health impacts are real. Uh, the industry will probably continue to argue that that uh, we need to actually do a better job of seeing the bullet. It's not enough to see the smoking gun and and uh, you know the bullet holes. But the but the fact is that that uh, for example, refinery particulate air pollution. So the smoke um, that you're talking about seeing drifting across the bay and this time of year into Marin as well. Um, that's particulate air pollution. That's the deadliest air pollutant. It kills uh, air district estimates, something in the range of two to 6,000 people every year in the Bay area prematurely. And um, it's got a lot of, a lot of, um, of sources, unfortunately, wildfires included. Uh, but the biggest industrial sources are the catalytic cracking units in the oil refineries, um, Chevron and and uh, PBF. And uh, so the two refineries that flared that you saw that smoke from, they're the biggest sources from their cat crackers. The Air District has um, passed a they, they did a major study of this, and it, it'd be worth looking online at the Air District's uh, Rule 6-5 to see what their, what their air modeling looked like for the refinery pollution. Um, but if you're looking for incident reports, the Contra Costa uh, County Health Services, will they do have an industrial safety ordinance, and they will post alerts on their, uh, on their website uh, when, there's, when there's an incident. The, what I want to say is on Thursday, Chevron and, and uh, PBF are suing our local air district. They're trying to get out of that cat cracker particulate matter rule. That's Thursday morning, 9 a.m. in Contra Costa Superior Court. And if you go online, you can join that hearing. Oh, Greg, we'll try to make sure we have some of these resources available on our page on KLW.org. Appreciate you answering that question. I do want to let listeners know this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7. KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind. We're discussing what a transition away from fossil fuels might mean for Bay Area communities home to refineries. We're joined by Greg Karras, senior scientist with Communities for a Better Environment and NRDC senior attorney Ann Alexander. You can join the conversation by calling us at 866-798-TALK. It's 866-798-8255. Well, I wanted to uh, start with you, Ann, to talk about what you think needs to be done at a broader state or local level to be supporting this transition away from fossil fuels and have this sort of orderly plan for refineries. What would you like to see happen at, at a, at a broader policy level here? Yeah. Uh, at the risk of providing and too simple an answer to that, sometimes things really do boil down. Uh, First, we need information, and second, we need funds, resources. Um, to put a little bit more flesh on that, um, as I mentioned, there is a lot we don't know about what is at these refinery sites. We have 
reason to suspect that it is the stuff of nightmares. Uh, but if it is, we need to know that in order to plan how communities can transition and build other types of businesses and build an economy on these sites that are going to need a lot of work. So we need to be gathering information on that. Um, this is something that local communities actually have some power to do, but it can be more effectively done if it's done collectively. And I am very much hoping that this rises to the attention of our state agencies and our state legislatures so we can start collecting the information we need. And then there is no way around the fact that we will need some resources in order to make these transitions work. And I think what hopefully lawmakers and all of us can agree on is that since oil companies are the ones that have put us in this spot and have been profiting for literally well over 100 years, they are the ones who should be paying for a transition. Um, but we need to be thinking through as a policy matter how we make that happen and what kinds of resources we need. Uh, there have already been some pretty good studies done as an initial matter on how we can try to transition the workers. Um, that's not something where you can snap your fingers and say, well, they can work in clean energy because it's obviously more complicated than that. We need to support them. We need to support, you know, in the transition process and make sure that they can continue on a solid economic path. But we certainly need uh, more work to understand that issue. Um, and we need to start pulling the funds together now. And Greg Karras, we just have a couple minutes left. So I wanted to basically ask you the same question about what we need to be doing from a policy perspective. I would note that the California Resources Board, as uh, our previous guest, Assembly Member Rebecca Bauer-Cahan mentioned, has called for and, and required the phase-out of internal combustion engine vehicles as, as new car sales by 2035. So their assumption, to some extent, is this is just going to happen somewhat naturally as we ratchet down our demand for fossil fuels. What's your take on that, and what would you like to see the state or local government's do uh, to address this challenge? Yeah, actually, I have an update on that. The uh, The State Air Resources Board, the board itself, overruled its staff and said that they have to actually uh, start planning now uh, to figure out what they're going to do to make sure that the refineries are forced to ramp down um, in line with that reduction in, in fuel needs, in fuel supply. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, but the order has been given late last year. Um, it's also being addressed by the California Energy Commission at the state level. Um, they're afraid to talk about it uh, too much, so I'm going to. The um, Anne's right. We need the money for the transition. Um, the state actually has a policy on that. Uh, it shows up in the in the uh, attorney general's lawsuit against the big oil companies, where they're they're uh, demanding um, damages that include prospective damages to pay for the, uh, to make up for the time that's been lost because we're starting so late. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that, that frankly is a state policy that's out there statewide that's saying the oil, oil companies should pay. And here's one way that we're going to make that happen. Uh, what the big piece that's missing is what you just, what you'd think it'd be. Um, if we're going to, ramp down oil refining. It's crazy to think that these for-profit companies are just going to do that voluntarily. Uh, 
they're not. Yeah. Everybody well, knows you, that. So the state, the state, the, the air resources board, the air quality management district at the regional level, the, the county industrial safety ordinance, uh, all, there's all sorts of ways that local, state, and regional governments can start enforcing clean air, um, clean air laws. Well, Greg, we're to- unfortunately out of time, but I really appreciate you addressing that. And I wish we could take more minutes to discuss this, but I just want to thank you both so much for joining us. Ann Alexander, senior attorney with NRDC and Greg Karras, energy system scientist and author of Decommissioning California Refineries, Climate and Health Paths in an Oil State. Thank you both so much for joining us on this segment. Thanks for having me, Ethan. And coming up after the break, we're going to take a tour through the WPA murals of Coit Tower and learn why they were so controversial in their time. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Rose Aguilar, host of Your Call. Every Monday, we start the week with our One Planet series, wide-ranging conversations about humanity and the environment. And on Fridays, we convene our media roundtable, where journalists analyze the week's news and highlight great reporting you might have missed. In between, we talk about things that matter, from the global to the local. Join us weekdays at 10 a.m. here on KALW, or subscribe to Your Call on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. Three little letters that make life okay. WBA. As you wander through the winding streets of San Francisco's North Beach, or look at our skyline driving across the Bay or Golden Gate Bridges, you might see Coit Tower. Built in 1933 to honor Lillian Hitchcock Coit, the hidden gem of this building is not the Art Deco fire hose facade but really more the murals inside. Here to take us on a trip through these works of art that seem to provide both social commentary and history in combination is Charlie Goldberg, retired ER doctor and current docent at the MoMA, the Museum of the African Diaspora, and a lecturer at the Ocean Lifelong Learning Institute, where he gives talks on a variety of subjects, including the WPA art of San Francisco. Charlie, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you, Fred, and it's uh, great to catch up with you again. You and I have a long history together. We do. For those who don't know, we're both ex-ER doctors who actually met back in medical school in Cleveland in the late 80s and did a musical review show together. So that's a different subject for a different day. A little bit of history. What is the story behind Coit Tower, and who was this character, Lillian Hitchcock Coit? Well, uh, Lily Coit was really quite a character. The story goes that uh, when she was a teenager, she saw firefighters fighting a fire. She threw down her school books and chipped in and helped them fight the fire, which started this long, loving relationship that she had with the firefighters of San Francisco. And, uh, you know, she was a, a pretty wild person herself, you know, at a time when Women were typically more buttoned down. She used to smoke cigars. She wore pants. She used to gamble and she used to Hmm. hang out in establishments that were considered more male oriented, uh, establishments. Then, uh, what she did is when she died, she ended up leaving a third of her estate to the city of San Francisco Mm -hmm. for them to in some way beautify the city. And that's how the tower came about. Interesting. So Coit Tower itself was not a WPA project, but the murals inside of it were. What can you tell us about the WPA and who led the 26 artists who created these wonderful works of art? 
The WPA stands for the Works Project Administration. And what it was, was a, a program started by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, it was during the mm-hmm. Depression. It was the idea was to try to put people to work so that they would have some food on the table that they could feed their families with. Um, and so if you think about the Tennessee Valley Authority or Hoover Dam, those were built by mm-hmm. the WPA. But there was an lawyer turned artist named George Biddle who had the ear of Roosevelt who convinced Roosevelt that he really needs to hire artists as well that they could play a very important role in the history of America by showing art and that way they would be paid as well and was there one individual artist who stands out among them as kind of a leader of that group well uh there were several and there were a lot of influential artists but if we're talking about Coit Tower there was Victor Arnatoff who was put in charge of the murals in Coit Tower. And he himself mm-hmm. has the, the largest mural in there. It's called City Life. You know, he also was an interesting character because he was born, uh, in, you know, in, in Russia before the revolution. He mm-hmm. was born in a white Russian family, but then he ended mm-hmm. up going to Mexico after they escaped, hooking up with, uh, Diego Rivera, who, who, and, and that's where he really started to get politicized, you know, became a full on communist. And so what you have is you have sort of someone with very, very strong communist sympathies who's in charge of all the murals, mm-hmm. uh, in Coit Tower. And you see that influence. Interesting. So I know there are 27 murals in the building. And since we can't see them on radio, let's talk about some of the most interesting ones. Uh, let's talk about the one that was done by uh, Arnatoff. Is, is it called City Life? It is. And it's a huge mural. Okay. So it's 10 feet by 36 feet. So if you can sort of imagine uh, how big uh, and all-encompassing a mural that size would be. And what it does is it shows a lot of different San Francisco scenes. There's a lot of people that are on the street. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of workers. But there's also mm-hmm. in the background a car accident that people are trying to rape a car over. Um, in almost mm-hmm. the center of the mural, you see someone who has a gun pointed to him while his partner is actually pickpocketing that person. So you see that. That's sort of Interesting. A, a fun part. But probably the most controversial portion of this mural is something called the Red Wedge. And what it is, it's mm-hmm. a newsstand that features all these communist newspapers and you can read the titles of the newspapers on them and victor arnatoff puts a self-portrait right next to this newsstand so he's really aligning himself with these communist newspapers interesting so these these concepts seemed kind of radical at the for the times uh what was the public's reaction to these works of art and did it have any effect on the opening of coit tower at all well, in fact, the, these murals, it was delayed by three months because of all the protests about this. And, you know, you could sort of understand wow. why there would be protests. I mean, this is uh, public money that's being used. And I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of people really objected to this politicization of these murals. Uh, but in the end, uh, the artists won out and, you know, the, the murals continued. Now, there are a couple of other ones that are interesting. There's one, I guess there's an industrial scene mural. Uh, talk to us about that. Right. Uh, it's a mural. That's done by uh, John Langley Howard. And again, it's a pretty large mm-hmm. mural itself. And if you look on the left side of the mural, you see this very, very long line of workers, both black and white workers who are, you know, looking for jobs that, that don't really work. And, you know, this was also controversial uh, that, you know, he would have sort of a mixed population of the workforce looking for jobs. If you look at the central part of mm-hmm. the mural, 
Uh, you have, you know, scenes like there's someone who's panning for gold, which would represent, of course, an important part mm-hmm. of California's history. But just to the right of that is another very controversial portion of this mural, because you see uh, what looks like a wealthy couple. Uh, they're driving a very fancy car, and they've stopped in front of this old beaten down Model T Ford, and a family is basically living on the side of this this riverbank. And it really looks like, you know, that these people, the rich people are slumming to co- sort of entertain themselves by looking at this family who's really struggling to get by. So that's another very, very controversial part of the mural. Wow. So most of these murals, I guess, are the, the lower ground floors. Uh, there must be some other interesting ones as you go up the stairs, correct? That's right. Uh, you can't uh, see these murals upstairs unless you're with uh, the San Francisco City Guides. And I really would encourage people to take one of those tours and you'll get to see some of these murals that other people don't see. For example, you get to see a mural by Ralph Chassé, who is a, a really interesting character. Um, he was from New Orleans and he comes from both French and black heritage. He was mostly soft-taught, but he studied at the Art Institute of Chicago, one of the few public art institutions or national art institutions that welcome black artists to there and they were really uh, responsible for teaching very important artists during the Harlem Renaissance and he has a a, a mural uh basically of of it's called children at play uh but it's an interesting mural because what you see is a bunch of kids playing you know, they're on swings or skipping rope and in the center of the mural you see this little boy holding up an airplane and he has both aviator glasses and an aviator hat on of course, that's because during the time Charles Lindbergh was all the rage, Chesse, as I said, was mixed race, but all the children in the mm-hmm. mural are white. And he himself self-identified as white, which I think is kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Another artist that you can't okay. easily see is, unless you're, you're with the, uh, the group is a woman named Jane Berlandina, who was French. And she does these very modern looking murals that are very different from the ones that you see on the first floor. Stylistically, they're really unique and very much worth seeing. There's one particular mural that shows uh, people reading newspapers in a library. Tell us about that mural. Well, uh, that's a mural by Bernard Sakim, who shows uh, one of the artists that we talked about earlier, John Langley Howard, reaching for the book. And the book that he's reaching for is Karl Marx's Das Kapital. And so, you know, this was also very controversial and, uh, you know, it's very political. I can only imagine. Well, Charlie, you and I could talk for another, you know, 10 or 15 hours on the subject, as well as other things. But unfortunately, we are out of time. With 27 murals that we can't possibly cover in this discussion, nor can you see them on radio, uh, recommend that if you want to see them yourself, head down to Coit Tower. It's open seven days a week from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m., Entrance is free. And also, if you want to get a free tour of Coit Tower, you can find them for free city guides with sfcityguides.org. Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up and talking about this subject. I love your passion. Um, And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been great talking to you, Fred. Uh, Look forward to talking some more. Absolutely. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We're off the next two weeks for the holidays, but we'll be back on January 8th. 
So be sure to join us then. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us anytime at State of the Bay at KALW.org. Tonight's show is produced by Chris Nooney and Jillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan, and Deep Miner was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, happy holidays, and thanks for listening.